Peace be with you. Grab your Bibles and or turn your Bible on. Go to Joshua 1. It's kind of a hard book to find if you are flipping through your Bible and you're not familiar with where to go. We're going to be reading uh, Joshua 1, 1 through 9, just 1 through 9. Um, and as you turn there, before you get there, I just want to extend uh, my deep gratitude to this church and to the leadership of the church, to a church that values. I've been gone. If you're visiting, my name is Matt, and I've been gone for a little bit, as I typically do in the summer, and I'm just so thankful for that. And it, it gives me time to uh, rest. It gives me time to, uh, uh, to reflect. And um, so I just, man, I cannot say enough that how valuable it is uh, to be in and be a part of a church that values health, emotional health, spiritual health, um, physical health, and that um, encourages uh, leadership to take breaks and take time away. And, you know, that it's just so important that um, we understand um, that character is more important than the contents that um, gets preached. And a lot of churches get that backwards. And so, um, yeah, and so it gives a wonderful opportunity for me to spend time not pre prepping anything or speaking and being quiet. I get to be quiet and um, well, as quiet as one can with little kids. And, um, and also it allows us to cultivate a culture in which um, this thing is very much not centered around one person, one woman or one man. Um, except just Jesus himself. And so um, it gives opportunities for leaders to come up here and practice preaching and all of that. And so I just love that. And I love being a part of it. And I don't ever want that to change. And so I just thank you so much for that. Um, and so it's just, I can't express that enough. And so, yes. And in my time away, I, uh, I, I, I traveled a little bit um, here and there and, and only in the car. I didn't fly anywhere, but we drove to a few different states and did some things. We did some camping and some things like that. I, I drive an older car. I drive a, a 2011, and um, it was probably, uh, it was, it's a Toyota Highlander. It was probably state-of-the-art back then, but it's got the DVD player still in it, which I really think that they should bring back. And so I listened to a lot of kids' movies. I listened to a lot of kids' movies during my time away, which was helpful for me. Um, because um, they were watching Finding Nemo a lot, and it really framed, it had a, it had a great theological framework for my sabbatical. Um, it, it just it really did. It, it spoke to me. So the scene is, if you remember, and I know it's a bit of an older movie, the scene in particular that I'm describing is, so um, you've got Marlon, the dad. He's the single dad of the son, Nemo, who's been taken by the diver, taken off to Sydney, Australia, right? And so he goes out frantically looking for his son, remember? And along his way, he comes across Dory, you know, and Dory's got a short-term memory or whatever. And, and so uh, they're, they're trying to figure out how to get to Sydney. And along the journey, they come across a school of fish. And the school of fish is, is talking to them and, and explaining and giving them directions on how to get to Sydney. And I remember this scene. And um, what happens is, is Marlon takes off and right about the time Dory's about to take off, um, the school of fish is like, wait, wait, one more thing. When you get to the trench, don't go over it, go through it. Don't go over it, but go through it. Well, um, that <laughs> was, it's very helpful for me 
and thinking about life and where I'm at and where we are as a church and what, what, it, what really what the Christian life is like, this idea that the destination you're looking for requires you to not avoid the scary, the mysterious, the daunting path in front of you. If you want to make it safely, you have to go through it, not over it. Now, theologically, that fits, in my opinion, with the storyline of the Bible. Very much so. Um, and the book of Joshua that we're starting today, it fits with that. That God has always had this plan. He, he, from the very beginning, this desire stretches all the way back to the very beginning. He's always had this plan to dwell, to be, to be rooted in a place with a people, um, with his creation. And that to be in close, loving relationship with them uh, where there's safety, there's peace, and where there's this sense of rest. And you can, you can, if you put on that lens and read your Bible in that way, you'll see it over and over and over again. And as you know, like humanity screwed this up in the beginning. They had this. They, they were, you've probably heard about this. It was in a place called a garden of Eden. And there's a lack of trust. There's a, there's a rebellion that takes place. And because of that, they get then expelled out of that place, east of that place. And so they're no longer in that close, safe relationship, and they're not in that place where they get to dwell at peace with God. Uh, but strangely and mysteriously, which I can't fully explain, um, God didn't quit or stay bitter, but he resigned himself to say, I'm going to continue to pursue. I'm never going to give up on this goal that I have of being in a place with these people. And so this became... This, this plan became really clear and really starts to manifest itself in the storyline of the Bible, if you're reading it through, um, in Genesis 15, 13 through 16. It's this important guy named Abraham that you probably know about. Um, and here's what it says. He calls him out, and then he says this to him. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, talking about his descendants, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there's this promise given to Abraham. I'm gonna, there's going to be rest for your generation, for these people that come from you. It's going to take a really long time, and this is what's going to happen. And there's going to be this 400-year period where they're going to be enslaved. And it's this place called Egypt, as you probably already know about. So here's that. And when you get to the book of Joshua, what you're, what you, what you're reading as it opens up, there's obviously a transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua, but what you're reading is this, it's this fourth generation. It's this group of people. This is not the generation that was enslaved in Egypt. You see, it, it, that generation has died off in the wilderness because of a lack of trust and a rebellion, and they just, in fear, really driving them. And this community in Joshua is likely, uh, with Joshua in this book of Joshua, is comprised of their kids. Um, who've grown up in the wilderness. They've traveled around living like nomads. Wilderness is all they know. And now they're on the, the banks of the Jordan River and the time of, that God has predicted to Abraham 
and promise is, is delivered. It's here. The moment has arrived. And they're being invited to cross over the Jordan, to cross another body of water, just, just like their ancestors did, just like their parents' generation did, through the Red Sea. So what you're reading when you open up the book of Joshua is it's like a reset. It's, 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 there's a lot of reminiscence of what took place in Exodus and all of that. So they're crossing this body of water like the generation before, and, but they're invited to trust him in spite of the dangers that lie in front of them, despite the circumstances. And um, you can read about this like in the book of Numbers and that there's giants in the land that they think are there and all of this. And it's a, it's a terrifying reality. And so only this time, no one's chasing them, right? But they're heading in to the trench so to speak. They got to go through it. They got to face the dangers that are in front of them. They're heading into enemy territory. This promised land is full of enemies that God described as if you, what we just read in Genesis 15, as the Amorites. This is the land. The time has been fulfilled. The iniquity is full. God has been patient because I know some of you that are Bible readers are familiar with the book of Joshua and you're like, this is the book I hate because there's all this like death and there's all this war. Well, understand something. If you read Genesis 15, what you're seeing is that, well, while, yes, it is nasty and uncomfortable. What you also have to understand is, is this is a, a, is, a, is a culture of people that have been doing horrible things. And we'll get into this later. Um, boiled down really to sexual immorality, some horrible, and even child sacrifice. They were practicing child sacrifice. And God has been putting up with that for hundreds of years by the time you get to here. So the iniquity is full to bring up Genesis 15. And here they are. They're going into it. The enemy God has been patient with for well over 400 years has has to be dealt with if these people are going to experience a home that feels permanent and where there's rest with God and no more enemies. But with that said, let's read it. Hopefully I gave at least a snippet of a, an understanding of setup of how you open up the book of Joshua. And so Joshua 1, starting in verse 1, and we'll just read down to 9. Here's what it says. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, 
so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Be, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. So this spot, uh, you're reading this, this part in this, the, the overarching storyline of the Bible is an exciting spot because the promises are being fulfilled. Uh, but it's also disturbing. You've got this tension, right? Like the, everything that, that has been promised way back over in Genesis, it's coming to fruition. It's amazing that God is giving them a land, a promised land, and he's giving them this place where they can be at ease and be at rest. But it's also disturbing because there is this, there's, this, there's fighting, there's going to be failure, um, there's going to be a lot of death, which means there's going to be a lot of fear. But rest is coming. So you have rest out in front of them, but you have the trench, metaphorically speaking, that they got to go through to get there. Which, by the way, is your life. You see, the, the thing for Christian people is that they read particularly places in the Old Testament because you know people that they're like, well, I'm more of a New Testament kind of guy. You know, like uh, th these stories, they're strange, they're archaic. There's a lot of weird, perverted things going on in them. I mean, there's stories in the Old Testament that you honestly, you struggle to even read your kids sometimes because you're like, this is weird. How am I going to explain this? But what you have to understand is it touches down into your life because when you get below the surface, you realize that this is your reality. You are, you are, and the New Testament actually describes you as such, as a wilderness people. You are. You're, no, you're nomads, really. You're sojourners. You're exiles. You're, you're living in this space between this liminal space, this gray space, this space where there's, there's this promise. Because you could say, well, what makes me connect to these people? Well, these people are trying to live off of a promise that's over 400 years old. That's a pretty big deal. Well, think about it this way. Think about the fact that you're trying to, if you're a Christian, you're trying to shape your life around a promise that's older. 2000. Because, you know, Jesus has said very similar things to you about rest and what he wants to deliver to you. But there's this path to get there. So what I'm trying to highlight is this idea that you, you are <laughs> giving these promises of forgiveness in Christ and you're giving these promises of rest that's going to come to you at some point, this unknown time, this fullness of rest. I mean, in some ways you have it now, right? But in some ways it's not fully realized because this world's still really broken, if you haven't noticed. Our lives are still really broken. So it has been fully realized, but it will one day. When am I going to get there? I don't know. But there's a path of difficulty along the way that you just can't avoid. I mean, as Philippians 2 would describe it as this, this tension. It's right there. Paul talks about it in Philippians 2 where he'll say something like this. He'll say, so you got to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Because God is at work in you. And it's like, well, wait, if God's at work in me and he's going to complete it, what do I need to do? Apparently, it's like, yeah, it's, it's both. you got to work it out and it's going to happen. 
You got to keep the two together all the time. So you've been given this promise of a destination, a place, a land where you'll be at rest with God. I mean, Jesus says almost this exact same thing, right? In John 14, here, I'll read it to you. I go to prepare a place for you. And, I, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. That's spoken to you. Now, the place isn't across the Jordan, as, as bluegrass, bluegrass songs love to talk about. Um, yeah, only bluegrass people know what I'm talking about. That place is right underneath you. It's this land. It's all of it. I mean, think about it. The Beatitudes. What do the meek inherit? The Oh, you Bible people. The earth. The earth. You're like we all, we talk about forgiveness, rightfully so. But you're given more than just forgiveness. You're going to be given the earth, but it will be renewed. It will be it will be a place where there's no more enemies, there's no more fighting, there's no more disease. This is the idea. This is the whole motif, the storyline of the entire Bible. And you're waiting for that to happen and to get there. But to get to that place, to experience it in its fullness, there's going to be trenches and giants in front of you. You can't skip the process. That's what I'm trying to get at. The wilderness, the danger, the circumstantial uncertainty that comes into your life because I know you have it. I have it. You got to face the dangers of people. Like you got to face the guy or the girl at work that you hate. You got to deal with the marriage that's a struggling marriage. You got to deal with the disease or the ailment that you're just like, why? You got to go through it. You can't go over it. I know you want to go over it. I want to go over it. But you have to go through it. You got to face it. You got to face the world, the devil, the flesh. Probably more importantly, you got to face your own soul. And there are bigger giants there, my friend, than the ones that you've got at work or the ones that you got in your family. There are bigger giants in your own personality and your own like struggles with who you are. And in my experience, those are very terrifying. Our precious little hearts would so rather avoid the trials. But mysteriously, that's just not how God has designed it. And you, you need to be told that. But rest assured, rest from enemies, disease, and evil is a gift of God that is going to be delivered to you. He's going to complete what he says he's going to do. I mean, when you think about it, he's going to deliver on his promises. Genesis 15 and Joshua 1, when you put them side by side, which is why I read them both. When you look at Genesis 15 and you look at Joshua 1, they're proof. They're one little example of proof with a whole lot of space and time in between them. They're proof that God is not blowing smoke when he says he's going to do something. When he makes promises, he delivers them. It might take a lot of time, but he does deliver. So one of the, over, one of the overarching messages in the book of Joshua is just that. People change. Leaders change, circumstances change, God's promises do not. They're rock solid. They may take 500 years or more to come to fruition, but they will happen. 
but promises and like believing them and, 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 and really living them out, like living in such a way that reflects that you believe in these kinds of promises. That's what we call living with assurance. The liturgy, the structure, the way we structure our service has that, that, that Mike or whoever else is doing up here. It has an assurance movement. Because we always want to put that in front of you. If you're a Christian, you have assurance. That you, but, but living with that assurance, like living in such a way that it's like, man, clearly he or she understands that they have total assurance in God that all will be well. That I'm loved, that I'm forgiven. And living that out. Well, <laughs> that's not an easy path. Sometimes we, I think we act like it is, but it's not. And apathy is just not an option. Trusting promises means at times that your metal, your, your simple answers, right? Your, your, your little uh, Bible verses that you quote or whatever, which are great. But the reality is that one, at some point or another in your life, probably multiple times, at some point, something's going to come along and it's going to be tested. You know, whatever you're, you've accidentally taken for granted as, as strong faith, that will get tested in your life. And that's why chapter one opens up with so much talk about courage. It's probably the word that you locked on to as you read verses one through nine. And that's okay and good because the writer wanted you to lock on to it. Three times he brings it up, courage. These four lines, we'll read them again. Joshua one, six through nine is be strong and courageous for you Talking, God's talking to Joshua, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So there, pause for a second. There's the promise reiterated. Here's the promise. Here's what you're going to do, Joshua. The same one I gave to Abraham, the same one that extended to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and then to Moses. It keeps going, and now you're, now you're in charge, Joshua, and this is what you're going to do. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right or the left. You may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So what's happening here? What, sum it up. What is God saying to Joshua? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Joshua, here's what you're going to do. Here's your calling. Here's your task. Here's your mission. Here's your, I'm commissioning you. Now, stop and think about that. Because there's just something important that I think you have to think about in terms of your own life. If you're seeking God, you're trying to talk to God, you're trying to learn about God, you're trying to pursue God and make your life reflect one who is in love with God, he's going to call you. He's going to call you to things. He's going to call you to different things than he's calling me, but he's going to call you to things. And you always need to understand that when he calls you to do things, friend, you are always going to feel incompetent to do the thing that he is calling you to do. I wish it was a layup. I wish God soft-pitched us. But that's not how it works. It's always going to poke at and provoke your sense of inadequacy. 
And I would say that that's the point, which I'll get to here in a minute. So therefore, you're going to need courage. So let's get an understanding of courage. So there's just really three little movements I want to do here, and they're super simple. What is courage? Why do we need courage? And like, how do we cultivate it? As you can see, my time off helped me get really cubed um, and simple with my outline. So what is courage? Why? Why do we need courage? And then how can we cultivate it? So what exactly is courage? Because I don't want to assume that we understand. I mean, I think you pretty much get a sense of it, but the root meaning here, when we talk about courage, the root meaning here isn't mere boldness or bravery, right? The older meaning of courage has more nuance. In other words, um, you could be labeled bold and brave if you walk down your street naked. Just don't call it courageous, All right? The historical understanding of courage isn't just strength and difficulty, but strength for the sake of justice and goodness. Um, that's why courage is considered a virtue. It's considered a virtue. It's also why which you may already know, courage is not the absence of fear, but it's acting in a way, it's acting kind, it's acting lovingly, it's acting just in the face of fear. That's what makes courage. So like, for example, um, you when you read Revelation 21, which maybe you happy for, it's like the only chapter most people will read in the book of Revelation, but... And it's beautiful. It opens up. It's like this vision of the new heavens coming down to earth, the new Jerusalem, the new city that God has made, this place of rest. It's coming down and he's going to wipe away every tear, right? There's going to be no more disease. There's going to be no more enemies. All of that's coming down for his people. And then at the very end of that section, it gets to the like uncomfortable, scary part, the part where there's like, but there's going to be a separation too. There's going to be a judgment and there's going to be the separation from, from people and talks about the lake of fire and all of that, which makes us really uncomfortable. And, and it describes the kind of characteristic traits of the people that are, that are going to be separated off from God. And within that list, you know, are things like the sexually immoral and um, the liars, the idolaters, the murderers. And you're re if you're reading that and you look at that list and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They should be separated, you know? But you know what's first on the list? The cowardly. That's the first one on the list. Now, all of a sudden, you're perked up because you're like, well, I had the murdering thing down. You know? I've really, I've got my, maybe I'm at the stage where it's like, okay, I've got, I've got my sexual life under order, or maybe I'm, I'm really starting to really work on, I'm not like a compulsive liar like I used to be. But how's the, um, how's the fear thing going for you? The cowardly? Now it gets serious, right? So for the Bible, what I want you to understand that courage always has a moral component to it. It's not just mere bravery. It has this moral component to it. For the professor and author, uh, Karen Swaller Pryor, writes this. Courage is measured not by the risk it entails, but by the good it preserves. And then she goes on, courage requires putting a greater good before a lesser good. Courage is getting your heart 
in the right place at the right time despite the obstacles. Courage exists only in relationship to something other than itself. Courage cannot trust itself, but must refer to some outside objective standard of goodness. That is why, if you noticed, obedience is directly tied to God's command for courage. It immediately followed. In other words, what is the good that Joshua and subsequently the people that he's leading are called to preserve? Well, God you know, doesn't assume, you know, what, 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 what does it look like to have your heart in the right place? And what is the objective standard of goodness as Pryor talks about? What is it that they are supposed to stand for and fight for? What are they supposed to pursue? God doesn't assume that this generation of people know it, which is why he says in verse 7 and 8, be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Here's what you're to be courageous for. You need to understand the law. He says, meditate on the book of the law and everything written in it. And this, when we talk about uh, meditating on the word, this is where it's like I should step down and Pastor Barry should step up um, because he's more suited to talk about what it means to meditate on the book of the law. But I'm going to do my best. All right, Barry? All right, I'm going to do my best. The command here isn't to just to meditate upon the law, the, the words given to Moses at Sinai, to meditate upon that. What does this mean? Well, it means, I don't know what the picture you have in your head, but the command here isn't to sit crisscross applesauce on a pillow practicing mindfulness. Um, the, the literal Hebrew word here for meditate means to murmur or growl. I, I think it's more helpful to think of it like this. It means to ponder over the words to, to ponder like out loud even, like you're lipping it to yourself, to roll it around in your mind, to yourself and to another person. So this goes beyond reading. It goes beyond even memorization, although those things are great. You have to do those things. It mean, but it means to let the word interrogate you and for you to interrogate the word, to study it and keep trying to figure out what it means. Because only through that kind of pondering will you be actually shaped by it will it actually begin to take root in your life? Only in your constant pursuit of the word will you understand what is true, what is good, what is wise. Well, you have to pursue the word. There will never be true obedience, the kind of obedience that God demands without this kind of meditation and pondering over his words, which leads me to the why part. <laughs> this is why, why do you need courage? Well, if you're, the, if you're one who says, yes, I believe in the promises of God, I believe that he will deliver, and I believe in his word, and I'm studying it, I'm trying to learn it, I'm, I'm, I'm meditating, I memorize passages, I've got post-it notes on my mirror, I, you know, I'm doing, I'm in a Bible study, okay, like you're pursuing the law and understanding all the things that God has said, and I know that he wants me to love God, and I, he wants me to love my neighbor as myself. Well, my honest question would be, how is it going for you? How is the meditation of the word and the obedience to it going for you? So if we were really comfortable with each other, I could say, raise your hand. I'm not, but hypothetically, I could say, let's raise our hands if we feel like really obedient people. 
Now, listen, I, I don't ask it. Please hear me. I don't ask that question uh, in an attempt to condemn you before your lunch this afternoon. I don't have any interest. I have zero interest in drawing up your defenses and conjuring up that sense of like, you know, deflection. I have no interest in that. I actually have interest in the opposite. I ask the question in a way to hopefully draw out your true self, the self that's buried underneath the pretenses and the politeness. Because if your true self, like my true self, the, the self that is buried underneath all of that is anything like the authentic truth tellers that I know, the obedience part is a lot harder than your early baptized self thought it was going to be. It's a lot harder. My meditation on the word, when I think about my own life, and I just spent five weeks thinking about my life a lot, you know, but my meditation on the word can give me a careful morning. At best, maybe a careful full day, you know, where I'm pretty loving, I'm doing a pretty, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a pretty bang up job, you know, in my Christian life. You give me a bad night of sleep, or you give me an ailment, or you give me a difficult customer service rep, and my thoughts and my words nosedive into the careless. That's reality. And I feel it more and more and more as I get older. In the words of Paul, in Romans 7, 19, he says this, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now you think about this for a moment. Why does a saint like Paul, who was blinded by God, who heard things from heaven, who utterly transformed his life and gave his entire second half of life serving tirelessly for God, he even paved the way for outsiders of the Jewish community to come into and be accepted and enrolled in the church. He did all of that work. Why does he talk like that? Do we ever think about that? He understood that true meditation the true pursuit of God won't eventually lead to feeling strong within yourself and your own willpower. It will eventually lead to feeling weak and unable. That's what it does. You'll begin to look beyond the small subset of cultural moral boxes your current circle or tribe has concocted and reduced goodness down to. And you'll realize that God wants more from me and more from you than to check a few morality boxes. Because we can do that. Good old church folks can do that pretty well, actually. This thing of true love and righteousness runs deeper and beyond my initial understanding. And that's what the pursuit of God and meditation on his word is meant to do. You see, if it's truly God you're after, then there's no 
sense and pretending like you've got the chops for obedience. If you're actually truly meditating and pursuing God, you don't have it in your own power. This is Paul's great revelation in Christ Jesus. The point of the law, the, the point of the constant pursuit of obedience is to, to encounter your true self, your inconsistencies, and incredible walls of difficulty and of difficult, difficult things within your own heart that you can't seem to master. It's exhuming those things. It's having you face those things. The point has never been to pursue the law so that you can dig deep enough to leap over your struggles within your own life. The point was to hit the walls so that you crumble and fall down and you go, oh my goodness, I'm unable. I can't seem to get my grip around how to be truly righteous. What will I do? Which Paul would say, who will deliver me from this body of death? The point has never been to dig deep and jump over. The point has always been to lead you right down the middle of it. And so that you will be exposed of your pernicious self-assurance and fear of being found out. You see, it's actually cowardly to pretend. It's cowardly to always scapegoat and lay the blame and tension that I feel on other people that look more screwed up than me. That's not courage. That's cowardly. And that's what humanity has been doing all along. It's cowardly to reduce love and obedience down to a code of ethics that everyone around me that I need approval from deem acceptable. But to face yourself, to face your past, to face the current giants in your territory, whatever those are, like these Israelites had to face, and more importantly, to face the giants in your own personality and, and your own soul with total honesty, recognizing how impossible they are for you to overcome, well, that requires courage. It requires courage to get to the place of saying, you know what? I have absolutely no idea what to do. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea how to get through this. That takes courage takes courage to admit that you need help from outside yourself. And it puts you in a posture that God has wanted all along. That rest will never be realized or occupied until you get to that place. And that, friends, is the seed of courage. You see, it's that counterintuitive. The courage the Bible calls forth from you isn't something that you dig deep for. It's someone you rely on. And that's how you cultivate it. By getting broken enough to truly live in a way that, del that deliverance is your only hope. It, it, it means being desperate for someone big enough 
who's got the character, the wisdom, the strength, the spirit to deliver me in spite of my broken self. It's right in the passage. I mean, you read it. I mean, notice what brackets the beginning and the end of the commission God delivers to Joshua. Verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. See, I'm with you. You can be courageous. And then he goes on, and at the end, at the very end, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It begins it and it ends it. The whole command and commissioning is bracketed by this idea is, it, I'm with you. These Israelites were invited to rely on God through the wisdom and faithfulness of Joshua, whose name, by the way, in case you don't know, means God is deliverance. That's what Joshua means. His whole life was meant to be a display of that. But even though Joshua was an impressive guy, and he, 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 he was an impressive guy, he wasn't perfect, and he wasn't powerful enough to accomplish lasting change within the hearts of these people. But here's where the good news hopefully can hit you as I wrap this up. Like I said at the beginning, God didn't quit or give up. So instead of raising up a wise soldier like Joshua who could lead you through your battles, he sent a son who had the courage to die for you. And that's the difference. So I have no application. I just would say this. Take courage. If you want a deliverer, you have one. If you want to rely on yourself, good luck. Good luck. This table that we have, one here, one here, right here, this table with the bread and wine, it points to his body and blood of courage. It points to the fact that he's well aware of how inadequate you feel. He's well aware of all of your incompetencies and my incompetencies but he has loved us anyway. And if he thought we could do it in our own power, he wouldn't have come, lived perfectly, died and resurrected. He wouldn't have done that if he thought we could do it on our own. So take courage. And even though you cannot see him, he's here. That's what this table is meant to remind us of. He's wherever you are when you're broken, when you're lost, and when you're fed up with yourself or you're fed up with this world. He is here. And so in a moment, you're invited to come to this station or this station. This bread that we break reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us, and this cup of wine represents Jesus' blood shed for us. And I don't care who you are, and what you're dealing with, if Jesus is Lord to you, and that's something you're authentically trying to work through, you believe in him, trying to say, hey, 
I believe in these promises and I'm trying to make them real in my life. Lord, help me. I need a deliverer. <laughs> you know, if it's in your own words, if that is you, you're invited to come to this station or this station in a moment. All we ask is that you examine yourself to think through it. If there's things that you need to confess, if there's things you need, you go, I need to work through this more, whatever it is, take your time or don't come at all if that's where you're at and you're just not ready to believe. That's okay. We'll be patient with you. God has been patient with me. So let us pray.